great. Um, I'm going to be, I hope, showing two uh, extracts from, short extracts from two, two films. Um, but you don't have to go yet. It's nice having you there. Joe's a very old friend. I'm delighted to be speaking with my very old friend, Joe. Um, okay, which may very well be... Uh, uh, people may well, very well know Berlin, Belter Rutman's Berlin Symphony of a Great City of 27. Um, perhaps lesser known, um, mentioned am Sonntag, People on Sunday of 29. And actually, I don't... Okay, so I hope I'm going to be showing two films, as I've said, Berlin, uh, the Symphony of a Great City, and the group film People on Sunday, which offer uh, two different representations of daily life in the city, uh, in this case, Berlin. And they also raise a number of themes relevant to uh, cosmopolitan, understood in in, an informal or vernacular sense. Uh, The theorist Mika Nava, following Marshall Berman, writes of a cosmopolitan structure of feeling, the fluidity and excitement of modern urban life, physical mobility and encounters with strangers, transformations in culture into public space, and above all, the advent of a new modern consciousness, a psychic, social and visceral readiness to engage with the new, with difference. As Richard Sennett notes, cosmopolitanism has a very different cast when you think about it in terms, not so much of political theory, but of social experience, and particularly in terms of the social experience of cities. So the themes I'm going to touch on include travel and transit, dailiness, the Altag, le quotidien, the image of the stranger, and in particular the stranger's face, reflected in the photography of the early 20th century, the idea of an ethnography of ourselves, and the idea of the city as in some respects unheimlich or uncanny. Ulf Hannertz, writing in 2006, like many others, distinguishes between political and cultural variants of cosmopolitanism, in his terms between cosmopolitan culture and cosmopolitics, which Emily has already uh, introduced us to, while suggesting an elective affinity between the two, that is cosmopolitan culture, and cosmopolitics. Hamlet's notes the existence of what the US urban sociologist Elijah Anderson calls the cosmopolitan canopy, markets and other urban sites where people typically interact in ways which transcend the persistent ethnic and racial separatisms of the wider society. Hamlet's defines cosmopolitanism as an intellectual and aesthetic stance of openness towards divergent cultural experiences, a search for contrasts. For Mikanava, this overlooks, quote, the dynamic interconnection between identification and distanciation, between desire and repudiation, which are complexly at play in the production of the cosmopolitan imagination. And I think those terms echo well with your, your sense of distance and closeness as well. And it's certainly true that Anderson's canopies stand out against a background of discriminatory practices. So this interplay between openness and reserve, urban competence and unease uh, is, is what I want to touch on briefly but as I work through uh, other, other kinds of topics. So thinking about um, the theme of cosmopolitanism in relation to discussions of uh, and literary and visual representations of urban modernity, which is what I'm interested in, in early 20th century Europe, it's interesting to see how frequently the term cosmopolitanism crops up. Here, for example, is David Frisbee and his Cityscapes of Modernity, glossing Georg Zimmel's classic discussions of the city and its money economy and their impact on the freedom of the individual, linking individualism with cosmopolitanism. 
and this is Frisbee. The transition from small town to city coincides with the weakening of the bonds of the individual to the group, the weakening in general of the inner unity of the group and the greater freedom of the metropolitan individual compared to the small town dweller. Moreover, the internal freedom of individuals transcends the merely quantitative expansion of the metropolis insofar as the city becomes the site of cosmopolitanism. He goes on to say that this is not just freedom from, in Isaiah Berlin's sense, but what Zimmel calls the positive freedom to express the distinctiveness and uniqueness of each individual in their formation of life. For Zimmel, then, sites are the sites of cosmopolitanism as well as of the money economy. Zimmel is also a central reference point for thinking about the stranger, another theme, of course, uh, linked to the city. Richard Sennett recalls Zimmel writing to a friend that when he looked at the Potsdamer Platz, he understood that the city is the site of strangeness or alterity. Zimmel's stranger, characterised by a relation of distance on both sides, his own and the others, and an objective orientation, is hard to distinguish from the city dweller as such. It's really Alfred Schutz writing an article also called The Stranger, published in 1944, a few years after his own move from Vienna via Paris to exile in New York, who addresses the stranger's predicament, lacking the stock of knowledge of the native and having gradually to acquire it. The object objectivity stressed by Zimmel is less the result of mobilizing an outsider's perspective than of, quote, the need to acquire full knowledge of the approach to cultural pattern and to examine what seems self-evident to the in-group. This is linked in turn to the sense of the city as uncanny. Its size and anonymity make the city impenetrable. Even in enjoying the pleasures of flannery, as James Donald says of Baudelaire, losing yourself in the crowd could mean losing yourself, cutting adrift from the familiar coordinates of identity and community. Zimmel's stress on the nervous shocks of city life and the need to develop an attitude of reserve, the blasé attitude, is of course taken up much later in the century by, for example, Michel de Soteau, and as we know, becomes a central tenet of uh, cultural studies. For Le Corbusier in 1925, the street is full of people. One must take care when one goes. Even if these murky canyons offer them the fascinating spectacle of human physiognomy, the street as we know it will cease to exist. Le Corbusier's reference to physiognomy brings us to the face. In a city inhabited mostly by strangers, people do not recognize each other by their faces. They do, however, rely on the observation of faces, along with other <coughs> largely visual cues, to orient themselves to the strangers they encounter. Zimmel was, of course, here too at the turn of the century in relation to the face. Margaret, Margaret Worth has written, around 1900, the face took on new forms, functions, and meanings. I think it's a little bit like Virginia Woolf's human character changing around December, on or about December 1910, actually. But around 1900, we are told, the face took on new forms, functions, and meanings. Modes of figuring identity and aesthetic value or registering individual and social experience through the face changed. Older ideas of physiognomy or pathonomy intersected with new ideas and practices for recording, viewing, and interpreting faces 
in daily life and in the arts and sciences. The German photographer August Zander's Face of Our Time, 1929, and I don't know whether people know it, wonderful photographs, um, uh, with an introduction by the German novelist Alfred Döblin, was based on photographs which Zander had been assembling since 1911. Döblin suggests that, quote, viewed from a certain distance, distinctions vanish, individuals cease to exist, and only universals persist. The distinction between the individual and the collective, or the universal, then becomes a matter of varying degrees of distance. The idea of repetition is central to my final themes, the, the everyday, including the day as a unit of time and the ethnography of ourselves. The everyday is, of course, a vast topic brilliantly discussed by Michael Sheringham in his 2006 book on the topic. He notes into Alia Bart's concepts of the incident and the fold. The incident is simply what falls softly like a leaf on the page of life. It is this fleeting light fold in the fabric of days that can scarcely be noted. And in relation to Henri Frederick Amiel's diary, Bart writes, so nothing happens. This nothing has, however, to be expressed. The theme of local ethnography emerging from the surrealist Collège de Sociologie and taken up in the United Kingdom in mass observation returns in the work, for example, of Edgar Marin and in Georges Perec's call in 1973 for the study not of the exotic but of the endotic. This involves a version of that reflective distance which Amanda Anderson, amongst others, has, de has defined as characteristic of modern understandings of cosmopolitanism. As Sheringham writes, the everyday cannot be reduced to its content. It is not just repetition that makes daily activities part of everydayness, but the endless variation and sedimentation which turn the quotidien into a sphere of invention. The following section of his book, On the Space of the Day, is particularly relevant for the city symphonies, which I hope I'm going to be able to show. Jean Starobansky's discussion of the day as a form porteuse de sens a meaning-bearing structure, notes that when Rousseau writes of ma journée, it is part of what Starobansi calls a mouvement de totalisation, linking him to the world or even the cosmos. Similarly, in the city symphonies, as in Zander's photographs, the individuals represented mostly stand for types, the factory worker, the office worker, the policeman. This is also true of the broader genre of day films, such as People on Sunday, where the amateur actors are often playing themselves, introduced via their real-life occupations. These films typically figure what Peter Hanke would call a successful day, incorporating a day out at the leisure park or the countryside. The question of private and of shared realities is a widespread concern of the period. Thus we find in the writings of Georg Zimmel at the start of the 20th century that what has recently attracted modern people so strongly to aesthetic values is the unique play between the objective and subjective standpoint, between the individuality of taste and the feeling that it is indeed rooted in a supra-individual universal. More broadly, external events are understood in terms of inner experience and inner events in terms of wider external processes. In the metropolis and mental life, Zimmel pursued the concept that in the modern city, 
the same factors which have coalesced into the exactness and minute precision of the form of life have produced a structure which is both personal and subjective and at the same time impersonal. The terms of isolation and anonymity within the big city crowd are by now very familiar to us. What I want to point up here is the insistence in Zimmel's writings, as in other of his contemporaries, on the complex interplay between individual and collective identities. The modern individual has, quote, to summon the utmost in uniqueness and particularization in order to preserve his most personal core. He has to exaggerate this, mod this personal element in order to remain audible even to himself. For psychoanalysis, there is the question of how private dreams become collective representations. And for Zimmel, as for other social theories of the period, there is a perceived simultaneous and expansion and contraction of the domain of the individual person in modern life. Turning now more directly to early theorizations of the cinema, we find some of these concerns articulated in perhaps the first sociological study of film, that of the German social theorist Emilia Altenloh, whose sociology of the cinema, the cinematic enterprise, and the social strata of its spectators was published in Germany in 1913. Altenloh presents as one of her results that although the cinema is a mass entertainment, it is one in which the individual participants are, quote, alien to one another as a totality and only peripherally linked to one another, quote, in their search for something in common, just as they might all seek to travel to work at what happens to be the same time, but without possessing a common purpose or a desire to be together. Cosmopolitanism as a concept becomes central, implicitly or explicitly, in writings about cinema in the first decades of the 20th century. A host of discussions define film as the quintessence of modernity, while in the years of silent film, claims for the universality of cinema's visual language frequently correlates with the notion of the cosmopolitan. Moreover, film's ability to bring the world to the viewer wherever he or she is located, is seen to produce a cosmopolitanism of the imagination. The novelist Dorothy Richardson wrote in one of her articles for the film journal Close Up of, quote, the worldwide conversations now increasingly upon us and in a further article, whereas in the towns those who frequent the cinema may obtain together with its other gifts admissions to a generalised social life, a thing unknown in slum and tenement, lodging house and the smaller and poorer villadom. These people of village and hamlet, already socially educated and having always assemblage of every kind of human felicity and tribulation, find in the cinema together with all else that it has to offer them their only escape from ceaseless association, their only solitude, the solitude that is said to be possible only in cities. They become for a while citizens of a world whose every face is that of a stranger. Now on briefly to Berlin and Berlin film. In the early 20th century, the city of Berlin is often portrayed as American and sometimes contrasted with a more civilized culture which had survived in Vienna. There was also, however, also perceived to be a complementarity or continuum between urban work and leisure and this was an explicit aim of planners and theorists. The art historian Karl Scheffler, whose 1910 book on the city 
takes up many of Zimmel's themes, wrote in a futuristic essay of 1926. Oops. Oh, we'll worry about that later. The metropolis is to, not much later, but later. (laughs) The metropolis is to extend itself into the countryside. In other words, the whole country, the whole land will become city, will become metropolis. It forces the city to extend itself outwards. The broad landscape becomes filmed, filled with urban spirit. The old ideal of the city and the ideal of the street will be fused in metropolitan cities that are, as it were, city and street, at once extending broadly outwards and narrowly enclosed, at once cosmopolitan and communally intimate, at once metropolis and small town, and in a single phrase, city and country. Berlin's modernity was deeply intertwined with its centrality in production, exhibition, spectacle to the new medium of film. As the writer Breyer put it, the Berlin of the early 30s was never as creative as the Paris of the 20s, as far as literature was concerned, but it saw the flowering of the new art of the film. Work of any kind was hard to get. People in the early 30s were literally starving. Yet because a camera caught not so much an expression as a thought beneath, as if for the first time a lens could record an emotional thought, we also seem to be living in a world above ourselves, really something that was utterly new, with no reflection of other ages or thoughts about it. Now, the filmic city symphonies, which I'm getting anxious about showing you. It's uh, there, it's there. Oh, it's there. Oh, okay. How did that happen? Okay. You could have told me a few minutes ago. <laughs> the filmic city symphonies, which were a key subgenre of avant-garde and documentary films of the 20s, played a central role as an orchestration of advertisement for the burgeoning independent film cultures and film networks and cities across Europe, an imbrication of metropolitan life, modernist cultures, and cinematicity. They largely eschew individual narratives in order to render the city as protagonist, but they also hint at the thousand of dramas that take place at each moment or hour of the day. The day almost invariably begins at dawn, though often not with the beginnings of the working day, but with an image of the city before its human inhabitants wake. The city in the morning twilight may be understood. Twilight to dawn. City in the morning dawn may be understood as an image of the unconscious, or of the transitional state between dreaming and waking, which was of course such a charged state for for Walter Benjamin, amongst others. The city symphonies tend to end with night time, not with sleep, but with the energies of the modern city of spectacle and light. And these are the diurnal trajectories of Rutman's Berlin, which was widely imitated across Europe, and of the Brazilian-born director Alberto Cavalcanti's Riancoli's Ur, Only the Hours, or Nothing But Time, as it's variously translated, which I won't show. So let's see if we can get Berlin.
bit. <clears throat> I was going to show a bit more, but I, for, for purposes of time, I won't. Um, I started the sequence not right at the beginning of the film, which um, in which we open with images of water and iron. Deleuze's two dimensions of the movement image uh, in an abstract composition that then transmutes into the iron rails which carry the train into the city. There are no human figures either inside or outside the train. What is orchestrated is the spatial relationship between the rails and the telegraph wires, the train and the landscape outside. And then we've seen as the train rushing through the empty landscape comes into the station. After its speed through this landscape, the film transmutes, as we've seen, into a series of near-photographic images of the sleeping, or in Rutman's own term, the dead city. And I think there's a question about whether this is death or a first dawn, a time that is not yet the time of routine, as well as the first marker in the film of chronological time, the five o'clock, which, as the film develops, will give, serve to give order to the chaotic energies and movements of the city, Krakow referred to Berlin as a garbage-minded film. We've seen the, the, the litter, the sewers, the, the, the pigeons picking at some, whatever it is. Um, we also have, as it were, the revelers from the night before dragging those balloons, um, like the remains of the previous day, um, like the newspaper which blows along the street. I believe it to be, I don't know whether it's a newspaper, but I'm going to claim it to be a newspaper, because if it's a newspaper, then that's important, because it's like yesterday's dailiness. One of my students said it's a plastic bag. I said, you didn't have plastic bags in 1927. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the mannequins in the shop window are very familiar from um, films of this period. They encode the city of commerce, but also the feminization of the modern city, and as a motif of the uncanny city, uh, the representation of automatic life. We see the, the, the energies of the day build up very gradually with the policeman and his dog, the, the cat, all city films have cats. They're the camera eye because they can see where no one else can go. And um, I, my magnum office is going to be on the cat in the film. But it's, <laughs> I, I, my students keep sending me things. Like, it's a really good one where the cat gets tortured. So I'm, not, I'm not having that in my book. So it's, it's becoming a bit fluffy, I have to say. Um, then we have number in the city. The bit I would have shown you immediately after this, one man leaves a door to be joined by a second, and as they walk along the street... A third joins them. It's the gathering up of the individual into the mass as the day unfolds. One more thing I would say briefly about the, the, this opening sequence, that the arrival into Berlin Station, we see that sign, Berlin, and there's going to be no departure from uh, the city at the end of the day or the film. So Berlin, symphony of a great city, thus re represents a one-way migration from the rural areas uh, into, into the metropolis. Now, I'm going to show, I hope, very briefly um, a film at night. This film I'm showing you because, actually, it's because I love this film beyond all others. And so I don't want to talk about it. So the theme of the universality of modern Berlin is also present in People on Sunday. One of the original working titles of the film was Young People Like All of Us or Like All of Them. One of many enthusiastic reviewers at the time wrote, Nothing Happens and yet it still captures that which has to do with all of us and that echo of the but. It is important to record the nothing that happens. Made three years after, um, two years after Berlin Symphony of a Great City by a group of filmmakers, most of whom would become part of the uh, exiles and emigres who left Germany for the United States in the 1930s, Edgar Ulmer, Robert Sjodnak, Billy Wilder, Karl Schuftan. 
The cast were all amateur actors who returned to their real-life jobs. Erwin Stotter, the taxi driver, Wolfgang von Balthausen, wine merchant and man about town, Crystal Ehlers, the film extra, Brigitte Borkert, who works in an electrologramophone shop, and Annie Schreier, a model, and Erwin's girlfriend, who sleeps through most of the film's action. They're shown to us at the film's opening as types of the modern city dweller, linked in large part to the new media industries, film, recorded sound, transit, commerce, display. The young women are very much types of the modern girl, a figure closely linked to a vernacular cosmopolitanism, a cosmopolitan aesthetic in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, the first narrative sequence of the film, which I won't show you, by contrast with the linearity of Berlin's representation of the arrival into the city, takes place around Berlin's Bahnhof Zoo subway station. We begin and end this film in the city. As Crystal stands waiting, we see Wolfgang circling around her, a movement echoed in the circular motions of the Berlin traffic. This is Saturday in the city. Crystal and Wolfgang, strangers to each other up until this meeting, make an arrangement to meet the next day and to spend it outside the city. On Sunday, they travel, each with their best friend, Brigitte and Erwin respectively, to the forests and lakes outside Berlin. From the beginning of the century, the press was celebrating the newly discovered lakes to the west of the city. Billy Wilder wrote in 1927 of the city's rendezvous places, of which um, zoo station served people traveling, like those he filmed to the Wannsee. Brigitte, the friend, proves more amenable to false seductions than Crystal, and they go off together into the woods. And it's a remarkably uh, frank film about sexual activity, except when they're in the woods, as it were, doing what people do in the woods, uh, the camera just sort of very discreetly goes in a little wandering about uh, and then returns to them. But um, as you will see, this is why um, this is why Wolf's uh, shirt is torn. Am I going to get this? <laughs> Thank you. 
Just, uh, I'll cut this short. And, uh, what interests me in this sequence is the question of time and duration, and not to be too literal amount about it. I, it seems to me that the movement of the pedalers' wheels lead us into um, what Henri Lefebvre will, will call the cyclical everyday or the, the regime of cyclical repetition as opposed to the linear repetitive. This is natural time as against social time, and the distinction between what he calls rhythm times and the times of brutal repetitions. We have, of course, the photographic aesthetic, particularly in those wonderful shots of Owen. Um, these pick up an earlier sequences in the film in which a travelling photographer takes pictures of a range of ordinary people fixing their images as photographs or stills within the flow of the film. Here we see the focus on types and faces characteristic of the new objectivity of the period, as in August Zander's face of our time. These, I'd suggest, have a complex relationship to cosmopolitanism in their idealised universality, but also a natural or class specificity which fits perhaps less easily into the cosmopolitan frame and will, of course, take much darker directions a very few years later. Thank you.